Fantasy Baseball Today with Al Melchior. Friday to everybody. You know it's Friday because Friday's the day that comes after Nando Thursday. So, had a great time uh, talking with Nando on the last show, but I've got some great guests lined up for today's show. Uh, one frequent uh, visitor to the show and somebody new to the show. Uh, excited to have them both on. Uh, we're going to have Jim Finch from FanRag Sports and Fantasy Assembly, and he's going to join me in my quest to uh, unveil our top sleepers and busts. So um, working towards uh, the middle of my list, uh, sleeper and bust list. Uh, Jim's going to toss out a, a few names of his own uh, players that he likes uh, on draft day and players he's probably staying away from based on their their ADP. And then uh, the first time visitors could be Mike Petrello from MLB.com. Uh, he's uh, always putting out a lot of great, interesting uh information about StatCast and how that applies uh, to the real world of baseball and how it applies to us uh, in the fantasy world. And uh, he's uh, had a couple of really interesting pieces lately, one on Comerica Park, and that's been a recurring theme on this show, trying to figure out, especially last year, what happened uh, the the home games there for the Tigers because uh, Miguel Cabrera, Nick Castellanos, Alex Avila, uh, even um, uh, Jose Iglesias, I mean, everybody in that lineup did much, much better at home than on the road. And it's that that park's had the reputation for a, a long time as a neutral park at best. And in some cases, uh, a park that punishes hitters and yet seemed to have the opposite impact, both for the hitters and the pitchers last year. So we're going to get to the bottom of it. Mike's done a lot of research on this. He wrote a really interesting piece. And then he also recently wrote a piece on some surprising speedsters, uh, one of the things that uh, uh, that is measured with Statcast is sprint speed, and that obviously correlates pretty nicely with players who can steal bases and get a lot of infield hits. And there are a few names that near the top of the leaderboard that surprised him, surprised me, and and probably surprised a lot of you. So uh, talk about those folks as well with Mike uh, when he's on the show. So, uh, anyways, not a whole lot of news. I know that's a constant <laughs> refrain this off season. It's been a particularly quiet 24 hours or so since we were last on, but uh, do have a few things here. Uh, Sergio Romo has re-signed with the Rays, um, which is kind of a weird thing, I have to admit, for me to say to re-sign with the Rays because he was with the Giants for such a long time that, I, to me, Sergio Romo is still a Giant. But, um, you know, not... Uh, I mean, I guess maybe down the road, maybe uh, Romo could be in that uh, closer picture because he obviously has a ton of experience. And Alex Colomay has been uh, one of the players who's just been consistently named in trade rumors for, for quite a while, especially this offseason. Um, but last year, a um, little bit of, I wouldn't say maybe not a down year, but a little bit off his normal uh, pace. Uh, Romo had a 356 ERA. Made 55 appearances, uh, still more than a strikeout per inning, but not the usual uh, pristine control. 
that we be, be, become accustomed to with Sergio Romo. But I think the skill set is still one that's sufficiently robust that uh, he maybe now with this move to Tampa Bay that uh, Romo gets he gets a little consideration if you're keeping a list of potential closers and waiting. I think Romo gets on that list now, whereas he probably wouldn't have been uh, a lot of other places. So anyhow, Romo re-signing with the Rays. Um, Romo's former team, the Giants, um, they made a, a signing as well, for, a minor league deal for Derek Holland. And by the way, doesn't necessarily bode really great for this show today that when I was putting my notes together, I put Derek Holland in my notes and then I promptly typed in the stats for Greg Holland. <laughs> but I did fix it. I did. I caught that. But uh, yeah, two, two Hollands are apparently one too many for me to keep track of. Derek Holland, uh, while well, Greg Holland had a little bit of, a, of an offseason last year, I mean, he still was plenty fantasy relevant uh, with a lot of saves. But we're talking about Derek Holland signing with the Giants. Not a very good year for Holland. Looked okay initially with the White Sox, but wound up being a pretty ugly season for him. Finished up at 7-14 with a 6.20 ERA. And home runs, as you might expect for Holland, being a fly ball pitcher, was for his many years with the Texas Rangers. Took that skill profile up to guaranteed rate field where you could be guaranteed he was going to give up a lot of home runs. He did finish with a 2.1 home run per nine inning ratio, which, again, even in the context of more and more power each year lately, that is ugly. 2.1 homers per nine. And strangely enough, he allowed a a higher rate on the road than he did on the south side of Chicago. So um, if you're thinking he's going to arguably the best pitcher's park, in all of baseball, I would say that AT and T Park is the best pitchers park in all of baseball. Doesn't solve every problem for every player, so hopefully it'll help Derek Holland. But that move, even though he's going from a, a notorious home run park to one that's very very tough on power, I'm not too encouraged based on just the overwhelming power stats that were put up against Derek Holland. The sluggy percent that Holland put up on the road as a member of the White Sox last year, 615. So, yeah, I, I'm not at all confident that this is a problem that his new ballpark is going to solve. Uh, speaking of the Rangers, which I was sort of peripherally, <laughs> because Holland was a Ranger for a long time, uh, a now former, another former Ranger, Andrew Kashner. He is drawing some interest from the Blue Jays. It mentioned maybe about a week or so on the show that the Orioles were taking a look at him. Uh, the Orioles and the Blue Jays both uh, playing, obviously, in tough parks, both obviously in pretty dire need of some pitching depth, some pitching reinforcements, and really needing to fill out the back end of the rotation. So Kashner would be a good fit either place. And I'm sure you're getting sick of me talking about this with Kashner. But for one thing, he is a player that's coming up a lot this offseason as a free agent and as a a relatively affordable one, most likely. So his name's getting mentioned a lot. So I'm bringing up a lot because of that. But also, again, because he just had this extraordinarily weird 2017 season where he allowed hard contact at such 
on fly balls at such a, a low rate, like just off the charts low. So he just might be able to succeed the way he succeeded in Texas. Again, not not a, a you know a fantasy mammoth or anything, but I mean he was a top seventy pitcher last year, so that's somebody who's who's relevant. And or I should say top seventy starting pitcher, but still that that makes him relevant in you know all but really shallow formats, and he achieved that with um, you know basically not allowing very much damage at all on contact, and he allowed a lot of contact. He allowed more contact than just about anybody. He was, I think, he had the second highest contact rate. He and Ty Block were right there, like one two. So. Uh, Kashner allowing a lot of contact. So, anyways, to to you know make a long story slightly less long, Kashner going to Roger Center or for that matter going to Oriole Park at Camden Yards, it worries me a little bit, and just because I'm not entirely sure that Kashner can repeat that kind of extreme performance, but he may be better equipped than any pitcher who's not a big time strikeout pitcher to weather those venues. So we'll see. We'll see where he winds up. I think we'll see where he winds up. I'm starting to think that these uh, free agents are never going to find a home. Uh, but Kashner is one who's drawing some interest. Another free agent drawing some interest is Eduardo Nunez. Now, he'd been previously reported to be pursued by the Yankees and the Rays and the Red Sox. And now a team outside of the AL East is taking a look at Eduardo Nunez. The Atlanta Braves apparently interested. They have a clear need. He could just slot right in at third base and uh, you know, most likely be an everyday player there, which would be great because uh, Nunez with everyday at-bats is uh, somebody that needs to be on a 12-team mixed league. He gives you the, the stolen bases, uh, offers probably a pretty good batting average, and I think in the right venue could uh, toss in double-digit home runs. So Atlanta actually probably be a pretty... You know, pretty nice place for him in terms of opportunity, in terms of a ballpark that wouldn't uh, totally squelch the power that he could provide. So that's all that's all good stuff. Um, So, uh, yeah, like I said, pretty, (laughs) pretty tame day, even in terms of just rumors of uh, player movement. So uh, if there's anything that does come across my Twitter feed during the show, I will obviously share that. But uh, that, that pretty much for the last 24 hours, that's about it. But that does offer me a chance to pick up on a topic that I pretty much ran out of time on yesterday, talking with Nando. Uh, I wanted to spend pretty much of a whole segment talking about this notion of safe starting pitchers. And I think this is like my third try now of, of trying to tackle this, uh, tackle this topic. So I think I've got ample time today, really. I promise this time. Uh, so I, I started off, off the conversation with Nando asking, how far do you extend the pool of, of number one or number two pitchers that you feel really good about? Now, that might seem like sort of an obvious question the way I've worded that. Because you say, well, well, number one, number two pitchers. So the 12-team league, that's 24. If it's a 15-team league, it's 30. But I mean, I think you, know, you understand that, that that can be smaller, that you might be drafting number two pitchers that you think aren't really legit number two pitchers, not what you have expected in, in prior years. Uh, that maybe there's only you know eighteen or twenty pitchers that you feel really good putting at the the head of your fantasy rotation. 
Because even if you're in a league where there's you know a lot of waiver activity or you know you have the opportunity to get players off a of fab or it's an active league for, league for trades or whatever, um, you know even if it's a league like that, I mean I like to pitch and ditch as much as anybody, but you, you want to make sure that those top two picks at minimum are pretty safe. In fact, I'm thinking in the last few years I've really just played around with most of my uh, starting pitcher slots beyond the first and second one. I think I, I've got, I got a little too loose with, with that. Um, didn't have enough reliable starting pitching in, in some leagues last year. But at minimum, I think you got to say you, you got to have two pretty solid starters. Now, Nando talked about the fact that he's not really hung up on getting a quote-unquote ace. He's good with getting a couple of guys that he would consider to be number two starters in fantasy as opposed to a one and maybe he said a one and a three. I mean, you could get a one and a two, obviously. But I, I get Nando's point that he'd rather ensure that he's just got two pitchers within, let's say, his, I forget what he said, top 30, um, you know, that he feels good about. And it doesn't necessarily have to be at the in the upper half of that top 30. So we all have different approaches to that. Um, but yeah, for me, I would say it is about 30 pitchers that I feel good about putting in the number one or number two slot. Unlike Nando, I do want to have an ace. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, because I'll, I'll tell you why, because the whole point that I'm leading up to with this segment is that there's just an absolute dearth of steady, solid, safe starting pitchers beyond the top 30 or so. So, you know, it's not like, okay, well, I'm going to go with quantity over quality. Well, it's not like you can, you know, build up a whole staff of, um, I'm just going to kind of show my hand here, uh, uh, Sonny Gray types. Because Sonny Gray, to me, is probably the safest pitcher I could think of outside the top 30. So you're not going to be able to do that. There aren't many pitchers like that. So I definitely I want an ace and preferably I do want two out of my top, maybe 12 or so. But if it's two out of the top 30 and, and you know, facing facts in the mocks and the drafts that I've done so far, I've not been able to get two of my top dozen because there's just too many other needs to fill by the time that those those pitchers uh, are ready to come off the board. And also, Chris Archer hasn't been valued by most folks as a top 12 starter. At least that's been my experience up to this point. And so he's always been there, which is why I think I've wound up with him and maybe every draft I've done so far, including the mocks. So when you have a fallback option like that, at whatever position you're talking about, then it's obviously uh, something that can, you know, ease your, your pursuit, you know, uh, make you a little less aggressive knowing that there's somebody you value much higher than everybody else. So yeah, out of my top 30, I'd like two. And that top 30 for me, you know, ends with, uh, you know, Marcus Stroman and uh, Zach Godley. Uh, that's, you know, when those folks are on the board or, or have come off the board, that's, you know, pretty much when game's up. <laughs> and if I haven't gotten my two or three uh, at that point, then, you know, then I'm going to have to make do. And then I am going to look look for some safety because I don't want to have be stuck with, you know, one starter on the high end that I really feel good about and then just go all upside. That that could just be a disaster. So yeah, Sonny Gray is somebody I would go after. Uh, Jeff Samarja, 
talked about him a little bit, I think, with Nando. Uh, again, sort of reluctant at this point. I, I know what I, I feel like I know what I'm getting with Samarja, and I know that part of that is an ERA risk with him. Pitches in the zone a lot, sometimes too much. So he's, he's going to have a low whip, or at least he could have a low whip if he doesn't get Babbitt to death. But, um, you know, he might get hit hard when he gets hit. So uh, even somebody like Lance Lynn, who I really, I think, is still overvalued, at least I feel like I know what I'm getting with him, you know, regardless of where he winds up. So very, very few names there that I feel good about. And that's going to affect my strategy and make me a little bit more aggressive with the top 30. Anyways, that said, feel good that I got got some of that off my chest. Got to go to break right now. When we come back, Jim Finch will be here. So stick around. We'll be right back. Did you know that you can listen to this show live on the award-winning Fantasy Sports Radio Network? Listen on the iHeartRadio app, the TuneIn Radio app, or download the Fantasy Sports Radio Network app. The Fantasy Sports Radio Network is the only totally free, 24-7, 365 Fantasy Sports Network of its kind without a subscription. Check out YouTube Live on the Fantasy Sports Network YouTube page and participate in the program in there, where you can ask questions, discuss the topics with other fantasy enthusiasts, or tell everyone that you disagree. Call into your favorite show and ask your question. The number is 844-84-FNTSY. That's 844-843-6879. The Fantasy Sports Radio Network, your free fantasy source, 24 hours a day. Welcome back, everybody. This is the Fantasy Baseball Hour. I'm your host, Al Melchior. And uh, Mike Florio, maybe you can uh, let me know what song this is. Because every time you lead me in with this, I'm like, oh, it's a good song. And I can't ever remember what it is. But uh, <laughs> maybe while Mike helped me with that. Ah, thank you, Mike. All right, Akon. Um, so now that I've got that solved. It's time to bring uh, Jim Finch on the show. Uh, Jim, uh, it's been a little while, but uh, good to have you back. And uh, uh, I understand uh, you've got some uh, good uh, good stuff coming up. Uh, what, what can we look for uh, online or, or elsewhere uh, as we uh, all get ready for our draft? Um, basically, pretty much a lot of the same thing you're seeing everywhere else, but better. You know, we're just getting our, <laughs> we're getting our all our draft prep material out there. We got our uh, top seventy five outfielders coming up. We've already covered catcher, the entire infields, and after outfield, we got a top hundred starting pitchers and top two fifty. So, getting right into the thick of things. All right, and this is all at uh, Fantasy Assembly, correct? Yes. All right. Well, sounds good. Um, well, uh, you'll give people a little bit of a sneak preview. I've been unveiling my top 10 sleepers uh, and busts on, on this show pretty much one at a time. Uh, and I, I might accelerate that pace a little bit today to, to kind of uh, put a spoiler out there because you told me <laughs> who you wanted to talk about. And, uh, you know, frankly, there's uh, at least a couple of names that uh, that are on my list too. But I'm going to throw in a couple other names of my own as well. So um, uh, let's let's get started with yours. So uh, who are who are some sleepers that you really feel great about going into uh, drafts right now? Um, well, it's one of them's 
I had basically the same last year as Suarez from Cincinnati. I mean, I know a lot of people weren't buying into him last year, but he basically improved across the board in 2017. He upped his walk rate from like 8 to 8 to 13%. There was more power. The average was up. I mean, everything that he did last year, I know a 260-something average isn't something everyone's looking for, but 260, 270 average, 80 each, and runs and RBIs and 25 home runs, that's basically what we've come to expect from Kyle Seeger basically every single year. And this guy's being ranked outside the top 20. And realistically, it's not a knock on him. It's just that third base is so deep this year that players like him, they're just being completely dismissed. And everyone's reaching for those big third basemen or trying to get the next best name or their favorite guy once the big guys are, big players are off the board. And it, I don't even see a point to reach at third base anymore this year. You can realistically wait until the top 20 are off the board, fill your other positions, get your other needs filled up, and then take someone like Suarez later on, and you'll get literally the same production that you would from Kyle Seeger, Evan Longoria, or any of the other guys that you have ranked from 12 to 20. Yeah, well, um, Suarez is one of the guys that's on my uh, top 10 list and uh, hadn't gotten to him yet. But when I do get to him, uh, I could just, you know, hit play on what you just said. <laughs> just, uh, you know, get get the tape out. Because the, everything you said is absolutely right. I mean, part of, part of the appeals, like you said, that he improved last year, already had pretty good plate discipline, but got even better. Uh, already had pretty good power, but that got even better. I think there's still upside from the 260 average, which you mentioned is not going to attract attention. But, you know, I, I don't see that there's much downside at this point. But, yeah, all that gets overlooked because the other side of the equation is, uh, you know, there's so many good names to, to pursue at the position. But, yeah, there's absolutely – if you miss on the, on the really, you know, top guys, you know, like the top five, um, yeah, I'm good. I'm good with uh, waiting it out. I, I'm not going to go crazy uh, over, you know, Rendon or Bregman. I, I, I seem to like Bregman less – a little less than most people. Um, but, you know, these are not bad fallback options. So, you know, I thought that was you, – you summed it up very nicely, and then I just basically repeated everything you just said. So, uh, <laughs> and then uh, – It all comes uh, down who, to the same thing. I'm right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we could just – you know, we could go to break very early. Just, yep, Jim's right. So, uh, <laughs> well, who else are you right about, Jim? Um, Josh Bell. I mean – Unlike third base, first base, I don't see it being as deep. It's very top-heavy. You do want one of those top ten guys. But if you're looking later on to fill your corner infield slot for leagues that play with those or if you have two utility slots, I think he makes the perfect player. I mean, the big knock on him when he was coming into the league was the guy didn't have power. He never hit 20 home runs. He was just a batting average line drive guy. And last year he... I don't know whether he changed his approach. I don't know if it was just rookie luck. Whatever whatever the deal happened, he had 20, 27 home runs. And he's just now, you're now starting to see that power hitter. But the average wasn't there. And that's the one thing that bothers me, but doesn't really concern me that much. Because in the minors, this guy was a 300 hitter. He had elite contact rates. He knew how to draw a walk. He had... 
basically a, a, almost a one-to-one walk-to-strikeout rate to where he's going to pick the average up. I can see the average being up to 280 this year. He may return a few home runs, but 280-plus average, 25 home runs. The RBIs and runs are still going to be there. I know everyone's saying that Pittsburgh's pulling a Marlins, but realistically <laughs> the only thing they got rid of was McCutcheon, and they were going to lose him in another year anyway. The rest of the team is still there and solid, so he's still going to get his counting stats. And especially in keeper leagues, I mean, I can see maybe someone being skeptical for 2018 because there's so many players, but for keeper leagues especially, Josh Bell's someone you want to target because he's definitely down on a lot of people's lists. Well, he is, and I'm looking at ADP right now, and you know, it, and I and I wanted to double check the ADP. I had Keith Farnsworth on this show two days ago, Jim, and we talked a lot about Josh Bell. He wrote a really neat piece on him where he he compared him to Chris Bryant, and uh, a lot of the skills, the skill indicators, match up eerily well with Chris Bryant, and. Um, you know, so I'm thinking, wow, there's really seems to be some growing buzz here on Josh Bell. And I like Josh Bell. So maybe, you know, maybe he's really good, but maybe he's not all that underappreciated. Well, I'm looking at the ADP uh, in NFBC drafts and I'm going to recount here, but I think he's 21st. Yes, 21st at first base. So I'll ask you uh, the same question that I asked uh, Keith the other day, Josh Bell or Greg Bird, who's ranks three spots higher and is going uh, almost 25 spots earlier. Bell or Bird? Easily taking Bell. I mean, Bird's, what is this? His last year was this, like, second year out of the league? Right. Or second year not in the majors? I mean, the guys, he's, he's starting off cold. I mean, even when he did come up, I think the general consensus on, jo- on uh, Bird was he would be lucky to walk into 25 home runs. Now you're taking him two years removed from baseball. He has to find his swing again, has to get his groove back, and readjust to seeing pitches. I, I don't see Bird as somebody you even want this year. I would, I well, would I mean, like- he... Yeah, I mean, he, he towards the end, you could see, you know, when he came back and, and you know, struggled initially, but, um, you know, certainly came through with some power late in the year. So I don't want to completely undersell Greg Bird. I think it's a close contest, but I think given, you know, that Bird's ahead in ADP, I, I would I have no qualms in saying Bell's the, the better value. Um, so. I, I don't know. I, I, I just, I, I've, I, as I stutter over my words, I've never really been the uh, Greg Bird kind of Greg Bird guy. I wasn't buying him when he came up. I mean, yes, he did hit decent when he came up, but overall, I wasn't seeing much in his profile to lead me to believe that he would be anything better than a league average replacement level first baseman that you wouldn't mind for a corner infielder, as were Josh Bell. I think he could be that future top 10 player because of his contact skills. Yeah. Uh, well, also, just right behind Greg Bird in terms of ADP, and this one surprises me a bit, is Trey Mancini. So Trey Mancini going a couple rounds earlier than Josh Bell. Um, Bell versus Mancini. Who you got? I'm Still leaning Bell, but I can see the appeal with Mancini. I mean, he did great coming up last year. He's going to get every opportunity to play again this year, except he's not going to have to fight for the role. So I can see the appeal with Mancini. I don't think you can really go wrong with either one of them. Is um, 
Mancini, he's dual eligible in fantasy. Right. Yes. Yeah, yeah I, I, that's another reason you'd probably like him because I like having those players at the corner or my utility that I can put in multiple spots. So I can see wanting to take Mancini. I don't think you can go wrong with either player, though. Okay, that's interesting. Okay, because I think actually that's the, to me the more interesting uh, take. Because uh, I looked at that I'm like, wow, Trey Mancini's really overvalued. But okay, so you're you're seeing him in that that same sort of tier there. So uh, maybe I need to give Trey Trey Mancini a, a closer look. Uh, how about uh, bust picks from you? Um, kind of hard, but I don't really look at like numbers when I look at bust. I look at basically careers, or more more importantly, career years and. Tommy Pham, everything about this guy, I mean, 29 years old, your career like, what, 240 hitter, you come out and you hit 300, you got the power there, 23 home runs, 25 stolen bases, I mean, everything just looks too good to be true from a 29-year-old. I mean, the last time I think we've seen a player burst into the majors like this was like Ben Zoberist, and everyone kind of doubted him. He didn't have much of a uh, track record, and he turned into a pretty decent player. But the players that come out at 29 years old are few and far between. I mean, you can look at someone, maybe Chris Davis. It took him years to finally come around. Anyone that goes to Toronto, they can seem to have a 29-year-old breakout. But I don't see it with Pham. I know everything in the underlying metrics looks good. But it just screams career year to me. I, I, I'm not going to touch him. I think he did overperform a, a bit last year. I, I liked him as a guy who was under the radar uh, for a while until everybody caught on. Uh, but, uh, you know, the one thing I would say, and it's sort of a, a disagreement but also an agreement, Jim, is uh, I think part of the reason that he was – you know, sort of slow to blossom was because of, of injuries. But that's also the exact same reason why I think he's getting overdrafted now because he's, you know, he has an issue with his vision. He's had an injury history. Those things worry me quite a bit to, to make a big investment in Tommy Pham. So uh, I'm, he's on my bus list too. Uh, but uh, I know you got one more guy you wanted to talk about. And I think here, depending on how you spin it, we might have a disagreement. So I'm interested to hear your case for, for your next guy. Uh, Matt Carpenter. I mean, I know he used to, he was, I compare basically Josh Bell right now to the way Matt Carpenter used to be. Matt Carpenter used to be that table setter, used to be the contact guy that you put second or third, and he eventually sold himself out for power, had a big monster year, but two years in a row now, you're basically looking at the same exact numbers. You got the same home run numbers, same RBIs, same batting average. Everything about the past two years looks the same. And that 130 plus home run year is now looking like the outliner. And he's still being valued as a top 10 first baseman or third baseman, depending on where you want to rank him, as he was when he had that big power year. And it's time we finally settle to the fact that he's not that 30 home run guy. He's going to hit you to 22, 23 home runs, 260-something average, 268 average. And that's not bad, but it's not top 10 worthy. It's not where he's being valued right now is his ADP. Even with the multi-eligibility, 
I, I just think he's being completely overvalued. He's not someone I hate, but I hate where he's being taken. Yeah, well, he's uh, right now. I'm looking at NFBC, so it may, you know maybe different uh, fan tracks or you know other places you might be looking. Uh, on NFBC, he's going 185th on average, which is frankly uh, strikes me as a little late. So I guess it all depends, you know, basically what your experience has been. Uh, you know, all leagues, you know, obviously vary. But, uh, yeah, I would agree. I mean, if he's going in the top dozen or so, then, you know, at, at first base, that's a huge overvaluation. But, I, you know, I don't think he's too far outside of that. And I do hold out some hope. I guess I'm more optimistic than you are, especially with the, you know, uh, increase in power that we've seen the last couple of years that he maybe necessarily hasn't had his last 30 home run season. I think for him, it just mostly depends on health. And that is a big question mark, just like for his teammate, Tommy Pham. So, so uh, I, I'm going to uh, just put a bow here on uh, pick on Cardinals day. <laughs> and um, I, I'm going to just ask you about a couple of players. I was going to talk about one of my sleepers, one of my busts. I'm going to table that for later, but I, I've also been talking about outliers, players who do weird things. I don't understand. And I've got a pair here. Didi Gregorius and Jorge uh, Polanco both had ground ball rates in the mid thirties last year. So they were, they were hitting the ball in the air a lot. And yet both of them have hard contact rates well below 30%. In other words, below average. And yet they mashed. Polanco mashed in the second half. Gregorius mashed all year long. Do you trust either or both of these guys to be power sources in 2018? Um, as far as power, I can see them hitting 20 home runs. Maybe Gregorius hitting 25. I wouldn't really look at Gregorius as the power hitter just because he's he's more of a runs batting average if you get 20 home runs you're not going to you're not going to cry you're not going <laughs> to complain you're not going to cry he's he's not bad but just the lineup he's in i think you're getting him more for batting average and runs cuz he's going to get those in buckets full with the yankees so i'd lean toward him for that also as far as his track record goes polanco I'm kind of skeptical on. I'm, as you as you know, I like to see players do it again two years right. in a row before I actually give them a vote of confidence. He's somebody I know a lot of people are high on. I'm I can't personally see going for him, but I'm not going to condemn anyone for you know comparing the two of them. I mean, they are pretty comparable as far as numbers go. Yeah, I, I think more maybe than, um, you know, certainly than I realized coming into the offseason. So anyways, Jim, thank you for taking the time. That went fast. <laughs> so hopefully we can have you out again. Uh, thanks for uh, for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Al. All right, Jim Finch from Fantasy Assembly and FanRag. Stick around. Mike Petriello coming up next. Don't go anywhere. Have you ever wanted to have a fantasy expert in the palm of your hand? Or better yet, in the pocket of your khakis? Well, check it out. Now you can. It's the Fantasy Sports Radio Network app. Download it now to your phone. We promise no weird viruses, no strange tracking things. Just 24 hours a day, seven days a week of pure fantasy knowledge dropping all over your head. It's the Fantasy Sports Radio Network app. Stop being a weirdo and streaming it online. Get it on your phone. Take it with you everywhere you go.
Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to the Fantasy Baseball Hour with Al Melchior. And uh, time for the second guest of the show, somebody I've uh, been hoping to have on here for quite a while. Really thrilled to have him on from uh, MLB.com with everything StatCast that you could ever want. Mike Petriello. Mike, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. Absolutely. How are you doing? Uh, Doing great yourself. I'm doing pretty well. That's good. That's good. Well, uh, but the the real question here is, how are the Detroit Tigers doing? Obviously, after the uh, sell-off, uh, things could be better there. But you uh, recently published a, a really interesting piece on MLB.com about Comerica Park. And I love the uh, opening line about Bobby Higginson calling it uh, Comerica National Park. And given that I live a little over than an hour away from Yellowstone, I, you know, I appreciated that. Pictured you know, all kinds of trails and mountains there. But, you know, the, the point being that, you know, we, we perceive Comerica as this, this pitcher's park, or maybe, you know, even if you're being a little bit generous, you know, say it's a neutral park. And the, the park factors from recent years seem to bear that out. And yet you had a finding in your, your column that was really surprising to me, that since 2008, and, and tell me if I, if, I, if I got this wrong, but that since 2008, the Tigers – give their hitters the fifth largest home field advantage in the majors. So Yeah, that's right. That, I mean, I, I figured uh, anytime I could start an article with Bobby Higginson, by the way, it's going to be uh, a good article. <laughs> but, yeah, <laughs> to, to, uh, to, to explain what you're saying there is I just looked at how the Tigers hitters performed at home against how they performed on the road uh, using weighted on base. And if you look over the last 10 seasons, uh, they had a 344 weighted on base at home and a 319 on the road. And the difference of 25 points there was the fifth largest uh, in Major League Baseball. And I just looked at the last 10 years because, you know, uh, a decade seems like enough time. But I'm not, I'm not sure that doesn't actually go back further than that. It could go back all the way to the first day of the ballpark. But 10 years is uh, what I looked at. And every single year they were better at home uh, than on the road. Uh, obviously, a lot of teams have a home field advantage. But one of this is the fifth largest. And two of the teams ahead of them are Colorado and Arizona. Uh, that really seemed like something that was meaningful to them. Yeah. Well, actually, I was going to ask you, uh, you know, what the other four teams were. So Colorado and Arizona probably could have guessed those. Uh, but but what, offhand, do you recall the other two? Uh, I would think maybe Yankee Stadium might be one. Um, uh, I don't. I think Texas might have been one. And I honestly don't remember what the other one was. OK, but, you know, definitely candidates that you could you could see. Uh, and, you know, I just found it surprising. And so I'm, I'm trying to, you know, I, I'm very glad that you wrote this piece. And so we can talk about it because I really since last season, at some point when it became obvious that the Tigers hitters had these just ridiculous home road splits and there were people, you know, saying and writing things like, well, you know, the uh, the the metrics there must be skewed somehow. Uh, but I have you know, been just searching for ways to try to explain this. And so I've hedged everything I've said practically about forecasting for Tigers hitters or for pitchers uh, for that matter. Um, so just you know, trying to, to pin this down. So on the one hand, you've got this pretty uh, dramatic statistic here in terms of the, the size of the home field advantage over a very long period of time. And on the other hand, Putting 2017 aside, when you look at park factors for things like runs, home runs, doubles, batting average, Comerica Park always seemed to be right in the middle of the field in the American League. So how how can you – and you actually, you yourself in the column said that they have a hugely disproportionate number of long outs that occur at Comerica Park, or at least occurred last year. So how do you reconcile all these things? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two answers to that. One is that 
Uh, obviously, they have that enormous center field, right, where you can crush a ball that should really be a home run and have it turn into an out. I think the way I wrote it was uh, looking at every batted ball last year that was projected to go 410 feet, and the batting average on those batted balls is 987, right? So 99% of those balls that go 410 feet are hits, and most of those are home runs. And uh, of the 28 of those that turned into outs, 10 of those were in Detroit. So there are some very, very high-value batted balls in Detroit that do not turn into hits or home runs or anything because they turn into outs. And so I think that hurt guys like Miguel Cabrera and uh, Nick Castellanos. Um, so that's that's part of it, certainly, that, that will swallow up some some home runs. I also think it just sort of depends on which part factors you're looking at, because I think you're right. A lot of them do say exactly what you say. Uh, but then I also saw, for example, like Derek Sardi uh, tweeted out his own park uh, factor projections. And the way he had it was for the first part of this 21st century, it was always, Comerica was always like in the, the 20s for being hitter friendly. And then, you know, from 2008 to 2013, it was like in the 10s. And over the last couple of years, he's actually had it as top 10. So I think that's interesting. It, it does sort of depend because not all the park factors um, are done in the same way. So it kind of depends on how the methodology goes into those, I think. Okay, and and one explanation that I thought of, um, and it sort of piggybacks on something that you wrote, that the batter's eye there is very hitter friendly. But I wonder if visiting teams who are you know coming from somewhere else and used to a different uh, batter's eye, it, maybe it benefits the Tigers more because, again, taking last year aside, which was an outlier, and I'm going to get to that in a minute. Um, the uh, Tiger hitters have done well, at Comerica Park, but the pitchers haven't done badly. And so, you know, I'm wondering if maybe the batter's eye helps the, helps the home team more than the visitors. I think it's a really interesting theory. Uh, and I, I don't actually know the answer to that. But, I, I mean, obviously the batter's eye was a big part of my entire premise here because as you, as you said earlier, one of the reasons, one of the reasons for my interest here was all the hard-hit numbers and people sort of criticizing those. And mm-hmm. uh, when I dug into it, you know, I saw obviously way more runs at home and uh, one of the largest home field slugging advantages. But the only way that the batters I was going to hold up if there was just more contact being made there, uh, and there was. There is an enormous strikeout home field factor there uh, just in terms of contact being made. I think over the last 10 years, only the Royals had a lower strikeout rate at home, and everybody knows the Royals like to collect guys who make a lot of contact. So as far as does it help the Tigers more than it helps teams coming in on the road, I I don't actually know the answer to that. Um, But it's interesting, and it actually makes some sense if it did. Uh, almost in the sense that you know, Coors Field helps the Rockies more than it helps other teams. Yeah, well, that's a yeah, good uh, analogy there. Uh, but yeah, you have to kind of play a little game of mental twister here to try to reconcile some of these park factors with your finding, which is you know, it's just very hard to to dispute it. Uh, you know, given. The, like I said, the length of time and the extremity of it. Uh, but, you know, last year also, you know, talking about the Derek Cardi finding. Uh, yeah, if you look at, for example, just the last three years, the Tigers certainly are higher than they have been in the past in terms of even things like home runs and doubles and, and batting average and runs. Uh, but it's it seems to be really skewed by 2017 when it was just a legit hitter's park in a lot of ways last year. And it's not uncommon for venues to have these one-year blips that then, you know, sort of go into the ether and, and there's, you know, regression to the previous norm. But there was just a lot of weirdness in the American League last year. I was looking, uh, you know, earlier today at uh, Park Factors. Uh, I think Texas was way up there. Detroit was way up there. But Yankee Stadium was was actually more sort of toward the middle. Um, guaranteed guaranteed rate field was, was sort of more towards the middle. Um, how much weight should we put into these one-year uh, snapshots of Park Factors? And particularly with... Uh, with Comerica Park, you know, being 
really a big improvement last year for hitters. Yeah, I probably wouldn't put too much emphasis on a single year unless it's backed up by a lot of previous years. You know, there were a couple of stars last year in the American League who had really weird home road splits. Like um, Manny Machado basically hit like Billy Hamilton on the road, which is insane to me. I have no idea why that happened, and I don't expect that to happen again. You look at Miguel Cabrera uh, last year, obviously an extremely disappointing year for him. And part of it was that he was terrible on the road. You know, I think the league average weighted on base is like 320 or something like that. He was 351 at home and 277 on the road. So it's not even really about being boosted by uh, Detroit in his case. It's being, he was terrible on the road. And I have to think that's a one-year blip. We know he wasn't healthy. We know he's one of the greatest hitters of all time. So I, I wouldn't put much emphasis on a one-year split of anything, you know, platoon splits, uh, home road splits, anything like that, unless you can go back and see that backed up by data. And in the case of Comerica, you know, like I said, it does go back uh, year after year after year. But what's interesting, when you look at the Tigers, their home numbers weren't necessarily out of line with what they'd been over the last decade. I think last year they had a 349 weighted on base uh, and a 344 was over the last decade. But the road numbers were the worst they'd had the last decade. So I don't know, maybe it's more of a course field effect than we think where it's in addition to being helped at home that they are then hurt on the road because they're not used to it. I mean, that's a, a theory totally not backed up by evidence. Uh, but that's that's interesting <laughs> to me. That's what I saw as well, because it, it, it seemed to be in effect in both places. Uh, yeah, well, you know, and, and in a way, that's an encouraging thing uh, for people who uh, maybe, you know, are thinking about drafting Miguel Cabrera or making a keeper decision on him. Same thing for Nick Castellanos, um, who just, you know, put up crazy good numbers at Comerica Park. And in fact, going up and down the lineup at Grant, there's, you know, quite a bit of turnover from last year, this year. But of the players coming back this year who, who were on the team last year, the one who... Um, who uh, and I think actually I've got this wrong because I said a, a home woba, uh, but no uh, on the road the player who did the best on the road was Mikey Matuk. <laughs> so uh, I mean, should I take what you said earlier about not putting too much weight on a one-year trend and kind of giving Cabrera? It sounds like you're basically already saying we should give Cabrera a pass on his road numbers. Maybe same thing for Nick Castellanos, who after Cabrera is probably going to be the most sought-after fantasy player on the team. I think so. I mean, I like Mickey Matic, but I'm not going to put too much weight on like what, 150 plate appearances or so that I think he had. Um, yes, it's yeah. true that Miguel Cabrera is a totally, I think, I don't even look at him as being a factor in the home road conversation, even though I said he had enormous splits last year, which is totally true. Um, I think we know that he's one of the basically 10 greatest right-handed hitters ever and that he was dealing with back injuries. So he he's either going to hit or he's not. I'm not too worried about where he plays. Uh, you know, a little bit different for Castellanos, but you know, not as much. He's definitely always had a home road split. So I would, I would look at that as being part of it. Um, but he's a guy who I've been on for a couple of years because he's always had these great hard hit rates. And I think it's always confused people because the production hasn't been there uh, until at the end of last year. I mean, he was really, really good in the second half. So, you know, does he hit a little bit better at home over the last couple of years? It looks like that's true. Uh, but I don't think anyone's going to matter where the production comes if he's able to keep up what he did over the second half over a full season. Uh, yeah, no, that's a good point too. In that, uh, you know, he was a year ago touted by many as a sleeper because of those great um, underlying indicators, and and finally uh, lived up to them. Uh, now, you you published another piece recently, Mike, uh, that I thought was really interesting on sprint speed. Something uh, I haven't talked about t- too much on this show. Something I think that hasn't really gotten enough play, and it's obviously of great interest to fantasy owners because of stolen bases, but also because of batting average. Um, 
uh, you know, players who can collect a lot of uh, infield hits, obviously uh, they're, they're going to uh, bab it better than those who don't. Uh, but there were some, you found some, some surprising names on the sprint speed leaderboard. Uh, who are some of these players? Well, if you're looking at the, uh, the overall sprint speed leaderboard, you know, at, at the top, there's, you know, Bradley Zimmer being number three overall, I think, was extremely surprising. Everyone, you know, whenever we make a new metric, there's always kind of a smell test. You know, like we do an outfield metric, it better say Kevin Kiermeyer is great and Matt Kemp is not, you know, because if not, then something's broken. Uh, so when we did the sprint speed, it was like, this better say that Byron Muggs and Billy Hamilton are really, really good. And it turns out they're number one and two. Uh, but you ex- kind of think, I think, expected probably D. Gordon and Trey Turner would be the, the next two guys. And while they rank very well, uh, it was actually Bradley Zimmer who ranks third right now, which was, I think, pretty shocking to everybody because he's huge. You know, he's six foot four, and people just sort of assume that these giant guys uh, can't be fast. It doesn't make any sense. I think the same bolt is like six five, uh, but that's what was really interesting to me is that you see these guys who are just underrated. Uh, they might have seventy five or eighty grade speed, and you, if you go back and look at some of the scouting reports for these bigger, taller guys, the best you'll get is like above average, you know, or sixty speed because it just is not what it looks like. And then when you actually look at the data, it shows up they have elite speed no matter how tall they are uh yeah no that, you know it makes a lot of sense and, and you know and it's also it does pass the smell test to some extent that i think as you also pointed out that zimmer's stolen a you know a, a goodly amount of bases in the minors uh, stole 18 last year only got thrown out once so um you know, the, I think that certainly helps to validate the, the results. Um, were there any surprise players among the, the leaderboard that were maybe surprising to you for a different reason? Maybe not necessarily because of body type, but, you know, reputation or, or um, you know, lack of stolen bases in general. Any other names that stood out to you? Yeah, and I just say really quickly that that one time he got thrown out was actually a pickoff. He got caught leaning. So there's uh, still not a catcher who has thrown out Bradley Zimmer in the major leagues <laughs> in, in 18 steals, one pickoff, no caught stealing. So if he hits even a little bit, I think he's he's really going to be a star, and I'm excited to see him. Uh, as far as the other the other side of the sprint speed leaderboard, and I've, I've got it up now, and it's up at BaseballSavant.com, and it's public and free for anyone to look at. And there's uh, 451 names that are uh, at the default qualifier here. At the bottom, it's mostly who you'd expect, right? A ton of catchers and BHs with Brian McCann and Albert Poulos and all these guys. So none of that is super surprising. But the one name down there that does kind of stand out to me a little bit is Jed Jerko, uh, who is extremely slow. And, you know, he has played a decent amount of shortstop recently. Uh, and he's basically slower than uh, a bunch of catchers. Like Drew Butera, uh, Buster Posey, we have is slightly faster than Jed Jerko. So for a guy who has played the middle infield recently, that one kind of stood out to me because this is very aligned well. Uh, with positions, you know, shortstops and center fielders and second baseman at the top, catchers, first baseman and DHs at the bottom. Uh, this is, to see someone break out of that mold was kind of fascinating for me. And somebody who, by the way, stole six out of eight, uh, stole six bases in eight attempts last year, too. So that just, uh, you know, adds to the, the mystery a little bit more. Uh, how about on the higher end? Uh, any Any other names besides Zimmer that stood out to you? Uh, what I really like seeing is that uh, it's not a surprise, obviously, because you know it's fast, but I was pleased to see Lorenzo Cain is still up there. Uh, I, I wrote a couple of weeks ago about how I thought he would age well. Everybody's freaked out about a 32-year-old uh, speed player, but he's in the top 4% of sprint speed. He is tied with Trey Turner. 
And so what that says to me is even if he de- uh, gets slower as he declines, which I think we all think he will, he's coming from a pretty high spot. You know, even if he declines a little bit over each of the next four years, barring a major and unexpected injury, obviously, he's going to decline to what, average? Maybe slightly above average? I mean, there's still those outlier cases. Rajay Davis is still up here in the top 10. He's 37 years old. You know, there is an exception to every single rule. Yeah, well, so. uh, a good note to end on there, Mike. So, uh, well, I appreciate you taking the time and sharing the information. And folks should go to MLB.com to check it out. So thank you so much for joining me. All right, thanks. Uh, all right. Yeah, you're welcome. So, all right, folks, well, I'll be back on Monday. Have a great weekend. Take care.